Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. But today, today there will be no celebrities. This is the 100th episode of Your Last Meal, and to celebrate, I decided to interview three 100-year-old women. Because, yeah, let's face it, the women always outlive the men. My name is Antoinette Underwood. I am 100 years old. Seattle's Eleanor Owen turned 100 just last month. Oh, you have to keep your teeth. If you don't have good teeth, you're not going to be able to stay well. And even though I purposely sought out 100-year-old people, no 99, no 101, this little rascal tricked me and sneaked her way in. How old? I'm uh, 101 plus four months. <laughs> And uh, what was the other question? Your name. My name. My name is Ruth Samuelson. Today, on the 100th episode of Your Last Meal, I talk life, food, and of course, last meals with these three extraordinary women. And IKEA's Krista Boyer shares the history of how Swedish meatballs became a huge hit at a furniture store. Globally, we sell over 1 billion Swedish meatballs every year. And if you live alone and have been doing a lot of solo eating during the pandemic, Sutanya Dakers is going to try to convince you that it's okay. She's an American expat living in Paris, and she hosts the podcast Dinner for One. But first, I chat with three 100-year-old women. Antoinette Underwood, who goes by Tony, celebrated her 100th birthday in July. Over where I'm living, for my 100th birthday, they had the red carpet. I had a tiara. I had a red cape. And I walked the red carpet with all my fans. (laughs) It was fun. Tony grew up in a small town in New York, but now she lives outside of Seattle close to her daughter, Mary, and her son-in-law, Don. She's still my baby. Yeah. (laughs) She'll always be my baby. Tony loves wine. So Mary suggested I meet them at a winery in Woodenville, Washington. Okay, Mom, this is your first taste. It is a Cabernet Sauvignon. I like Cabernet. When Tony was growing up, her dad made wine in their basement. My dad always had a glass with dinner. I remember as a child, I would say, can I taste that? And he wouldn't let me taste it. And you now have a glass of red wine every day too, right? I have a glass of red wine every night. My favorite wines are a dry red wine. I like a Chianti with Italian food. Tony and her siblings are first-generation American. Her parents both immigrated from Naples, Italy. They're supposed to be the best cooks in Italy. I think they're right. (laughs) When she was a young woman, Tony worked as a supervisor of pediatrics in a Catholic hospital. One day, a nun came running down the hallway calling her name. She said the Japanese have attacked us at Pearl Harbor. And the president is getting on the radio And, of course, and that's where he made that famous speech. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Roosevelt knew that war was coming. 
Once I passed my state boards, I enlisted. And I thought, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go where I can do the most good. We were sent to England, opened up hospitals in England. We knew the invasion was coming, and there were no hospitals. So when the invasion came, the soldiers were taken care of in the field by the medics and then sent to us immediately. If they had a pee on their forehead, they had been given penicillin. If they had an M on their forehead, they'd been given morphine because there was no time to write things down. Tony was a World War II nurse for four years sleeping on a cot in the barracks. Oh boy, it could be cold. We took turns getting up in the morning, getting wood and getting the fire going because it was so cold and damp. The nurses ate the same hearty food as the soldiers. And Tony said she drank a lot of instant soup to stay warm. When the fighting had died down and we had hard boiled eggs for the first time, oh, what a treat. That was the big treat. Yeah, that was a big treat. (laughs) Growing up, Tony's dad kept a huge garden. Lettuce, peppers, onions. And for her last meal, she wants the same exact dinner that her mother made every Sunday of her childhood. We had pasta one day a week, and that was on Sundays. My mother would make her pasta from scratch, and her sauce was out of this world. When she served pasta, we always had what we call brajol, which is round steak, very thin, filled with Italian-style breadcrumbs, pine nuts, herbs, Parmesan cheese, and it was rolled and then cooked in a marinara sauce for hours. Then it was sliced thin and served with the pasta, and it was delicious. And then my mother also made Neapolitan uh, meatballs which are a little different. Again, we use the Italian-style breadcrumbs, but we had pine nuts, and we also had raisins in, in them. We were always allowed to invite people. My mother, who was said cooking for seven, two and three more, really don't make any difference. And so I used to bring two of my teachers for dinner. And they would love to come. My mother was a great cook. So you were a real teacher's pet. <laughs> you had no, over no, for no. For her last meal, Tony wants homemade pasta with her mother's red sauce, beef bracciole, and Neapolitan meatballs made with beef, pork, and veal studded with pine nuts and raisins. And this is a meal that her son-in-law, Don, now makes for the family. Don <laughs> is a wonderful cook. Don makes the Italian food that I tell him about. He made pasta fazool for me. He makes handmade pasta for me. I love it. He makes the meatballs. 
So since you are now cooking these recipes that mean so much to Tony that were her mother's recipes, how did you go about trying to find a recipe that you thought was going to taste right? Basically, she told me about the, the raisins and the pine nuts. I looked through a bunch of old recipes that her aunt had had and her older sister and kind of combined them all together. And one of our cousins the other day asked if we could write down the recipe. And it's like, I don't have a recipe. I get in the kitchen. I start throwing this stuff together. The garlic has to be toasted right. And it's, it's just a whole thing. And, and the yeah. more wine we drink, the better the it better is. The better it gets. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so back to wine. We're going to talk about wine some more. So Tony traveled to Italy for her 90th birthday, and she traveled to France for her 95th, and she did a lot of wine tasting when she was in Europe. But Tony and I have something in common. We like wine, but we very happily don't know very much about it. Neither of us has the vocabulary to describe what it tastes like. So if Tony or I take a sip of red wine, we don't taste forest floor or, I don't know, an essence of corn dog. We don't swirl our wine, gurgle it in the back of our throat, and say things like, hmm, I'm getting just a hint of John Stamos. All I can say is it's good. (laughs) It's very good. I can't pick up the flavors. No, I can't either. No, I don't have that tongue or whatever. As you can hear, Tony is a fun lady which attracts some of the gentlemen living at her senior living community. They're too old for me. (laughs) So how does dating work when you live where you live? Do people ask you on a date? I don't think they date per se. He's always leaving me little things. Like what? Like a piece of pumpkin pie. Does he leave a note, or is it like a secret admirer pumpkin pie? I pass him in the hall and say hi. Uh Uh, He's very nice. Uh, They're all too old for Uh me. You wear a tiara and a cape. You need a king if you're the queen. (laughs) You bet. (laughs) I am, I am. Tony has seen a lot in her 100 years, but she can't understand why a woman has yet to be president. I was very disappointed years ago. England has had a woman. Germany has had a woman. What's wrong with the Americans? I could never quite understand it. So I was so thrilled that at least we're having a vice president that's a woman. But we need a woman president. We should have had a woman president a long time ago. I agree. We're going to pause for just a moment, but when we come back, you will meet Ruth Samuelson, and we'll talk about the history of the IKEA Swedish meatball. Samuelson has some simple advice on how to make it to 100. Be active. Don't stay put, you know. When she was 94 years old, Ruth walked a half marathon, more than 13 miles. And at 101 and a half years old, Ruth still walks every single day. I was very athletic. 
I ice skated, I roller skated, I played street ball, I swam. We used to hike to a pool four miles away. And I'd come home sunburned, but uh, loved the water. She says if times were different, she may have tried to be a professional athlete. But like Tony, she was a mother and a nurse, which is how she met her husband. Oh, my husband, he was a patient. (laughs) And when he went home, he asked me for my phone number or something like that and uh, called me up. Do you remember kind of flirting when he was your patient? Like, do you remember feeling a spark? No, I don't. I don't remember flirting. But I do know that uh, he sort of enjoyed having me as the nurse. I know that. You worked as a nurse, and then you would probably come home and then make dinner for your family. Did you like cooking, or was it more of a chore? I I think I liked it, but uh, I didn't love it. (laughs) It wasn't my main interest. Ruth married into a Swedish family, and those dishes weaved their way into her last meal. My uh, mother-in-law made Swedish meatballs at least once a week. They were top of the line. She was Swedish, and my mother made these potatoes, grandma's potatoes. What she did was she sliced them fairly thin, sprinkled them with butter and um, thyme, then baked them, I guess, for maybe 35 minutes, and uh, they were delicious. That That was our big favorite. Then corn on the cob. My dad had this garden, and one of the things we had were tomatoes and corn. So those were my two favorite vegetables. Well, New Jersey is famous for tomatoes, right? And yeah. corn, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. I find that people from New Jersey are quite conceited about their tomatoes. Like, they never stop talking about how good oh, the really? tomatoes are. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that, but uh, we did love them. Yeah. yeah. For her last meal, Ruth wants grandma's potatoes, a recipe her grandmother made that has been passed down through the generations and is still a family favorite cooked today by her grandchildren. She wants corn on the cob and her mother-in-law's Swedish meatballs. When I think of Swedish meatballs, I think of Ikea. And here's a bit of trivia for you. Did you know that Ikea is an acronym? The name is initially from our founder, Ingvar Komprod, is your I-N-K, Elm Turid is the farm that he grew up on, and Agunirid is the nearby village just outside of where his farm was. That's Krista Boyer, food range and supply manager for IKEA US. So I'm in charge of the food. So I come up with the menu items uh, along with my team. I do the testing. That is a very fun job. And also your title does not reflect how cool it is. Like it, I feel like it you really just, doesn't. You go to a like a party. I mean, back when you can go to parties and you tell people what you do, they'd be like, yawn. And then you would explain what you did and they would be so into it. Absolutely. But I am the meatball person. I do explain myself that way at times. The meatball person tells me the first Ikea opened in Sweden in 1943. And in 1960, they opened the very first cafe inside. Ingvar, our founder, was noticing that customers around lunchtime primarily were leaving the store to go eat at one of the restaurants. And it really interrupted the buying process. You know, people were hungry. It was a big store and they they needed to eat. So he thought it would be fantastic to introduce our own food. So the restaurant opened in 1960, initially just coffee and cold dishes, just, you know, small snacks, something to really keep the customers in the store. 
But by the end of the year, he realized it wasn't quite enough. Um, and they started serving hot snacks like hamburgers and other a la carte dishes. But it wasn't until 1985 when they opened their first U.S. location that Ikea added an item to the menu that would become synonymous with the Ikea shopping experience. Of course, I'm talking about the Swedish meatball. The Swedish meatball in and of itself is not too out of the ordinary from your regular meatball. Um, it's, you know, beef and pork for the Swedish meatball with breadcrumbs, eggs, salt and pepper. You've got a little bit of allspice in there as well, which brings out that uniqueness from, you know, a typical Italian style meatball. But what makes it truly and honestly Swedish is really how we serve it. It's with the cream sauce, with the lingonberry jam mashed potatoes, and a lot of people actually will eat it with the pickled gherkins to add to that tartness. I was wondering if Swedish meatballs are a thing in Sweden or if that's something that we kind of decided was a Swedish thing in America. Um, the name is Schottbular in Swedish. I apologize if my pronunciations are terrible. But on a regular basis, you know, it's not something that they eat consistently. But when they come to Ikea, Sweden actually has the highest number of customers per population that eat Swedish meatballs. It's like 35% eat Swedish meatballs when they come. Whereas in the U.S., granted, we have a much higher population and only twice the stores. It's only about 1.9%. <gasps> only 1.9% of people eat meatballs when they go to Ikea in America? Yes. I am shocked by this. That's the only thing that I want to eat. Why do you think that they chose that as the signature dish? Do you think, you know, back in the 80s or in the 60s when he opened in the first place, was it a more traditional day-to-day -day dish in the country? You know, I really believe it was. You know, in any cookbook that you see from Sweden, there's a recipe for Swedish meatballs in there. It was very much something that would please a lot of people, especially around the world. You know, you really can't go wrong with a meatball. I love eating Swedish meatballs at Ikea, partly because I only eat them approximately once every four years, so it always feels like a really special occasion, and partly because I love the nostalgia of grabbing a plastic tray and walking down the line and pushing my tray and picking up food and ordering food like I'm in a school cafeteria, and partly because 15 meatballs, 15 meatballs with mashed potatoes and lingonberry jam is only $5.99. And sometimes when I go to Ikea and I'm not very hungry and I just want a little snack, I will get four meatballs with cream sauce for only $1.25. But I also love it for the experience of eating in a furniture store full of words with umlauts that I can't pronounce. So a couple of years ago, I had read an article that so many people go to Ikea just to eat the food that they were thinking about opening restaurants separate from stores. Is that something that's still in the works? Possibly. Um, in Europe, that is absolutely the case because people have grown up with Ikea in their lives for so long. You have your regulars for breakfast. There's a line out the door every morning. The other thing is, is that we've actually found customers are so much happier when they have both the store and the food experience. I agree because I realized the reason that I like eating at Ikea is because I have a thing for eating in places where you normally wouldn't eat. Like I love eating when I take the ferry here in Seattle. I love eating in Ikea. I love eating on a plane, even though plane food is notoriously bad. There's something just about the excitement of eating in a place where you wouldn't expect there to be food. Oh, I absolutely agree. Krista gets to develop new recipes for the U.S. Ikea restaurants, and her newest creation is such a clever combination of Sweden meets America. Her lingonberry barbecue pulled pork sandwich will be in Ikea restaurants very soon. All right, two centenarians down, one to go. 
And Eleanor Owen, who is coming up after the break, hands down, has the most interesting and varied career that I have ever encountered. I've been talking about her to everybody that I know, and I can't wait to introduce you to her. Plus, if you're single and living alone during the pandemic, and like me, you don't really love eating every meal by yourself, the host of the podcast Dinner for One will try and change your mind. At 100 years old, Eleanor Owen lives on her own in a big old house. She drives, she's not on a single medication, and last week, during a big snowstorm in Seattle, she baked brownies to thank a neighbor who shoveled her walk. Eleanor intends to stay healthy, so we had our conversation over Zoom. Ta-da! Hi! Oh, good. Oh, I can see you very well. Yeah! Oh, my God. You still have your birthday decorations up. Oh, you can see my... Yes, a big happy birthday, whatever. Eleanor turned 100 years old in January. I got on the Zoom with all my relatives, a number of friends, contacted as many people as they could think of. I have 300 birthday cards, at least, if not more, that I haven't opened yet. My writer's group instigated all of this. They called my son, they called my daughter. They sent me 100 roses from which my son and I are now making wine. I have one batch of white wine going, another pink, another yellow, another red. Wait, and wait, they, wait, wait. We've got... You can make wine out of roses? Yes, yes. My son and my husband had done it when he was a kid. And he remembered having made rose petal and dandelion wine with my husband, who was a brewer. And so now, if you were here, you would find an aroma in the house of something fermenting. (laughs) The wine will ferment all year long, and Eleanor hopes to have a lot of guests over to help her drink it when she turns 101. I suffer from an addiction called TSA, Thrift Store Addiction. Oh, I'm with you. (laughs) I love thrift store shopping, too. Oh, it's so great. But that means I hoard everything. I have 312 wine glasses. You do? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Did you ever have a party when they were all in use at once? Well, actually, because I live in a very large, old, uh, historic home, and I sometimes have fundraisers or birthday parties, Mm -hmm. and lots and lots of people come. So I have lots of glasses. (laughs) Nice people would say that I collect. (laughs) (laughs) I am not exaggerating when I say that Eleanor has one of the most varied and fascinating careers of anybody I've ever encountered. And she has the Wikipedia page to prove it. Like Tony, she grew up the daughter of Italian immigrants in New York's Hudson Valley. My mother was a feminist who did not know the word. Education was a priority in our home. So much so... My father would not permit anyone to speak Italian in the presence of his children. Hmm. In the olden days, the immigrants were desperate to assimilate as Americans. When Eleanor was 15, tragedy struck. The eldest of eight children, she took her siblings to a watering hole to go swimming on a hot summer day. And at the end of the day, she sat in the car honking for them to hurry along Eleanor did not know that a train was coming, and her six-year-old brother ran across the tracks and was instantly killed. 
it just devastated. I, actually, I don't even know how I graduated that last year. I remember not being able to concentrate. I couldn't, it was just, it was agony for me. I'm sure I was clinically depressed. But she was extremely bright and still managed to graduate two years early. My mother wanted me to be a nurse. And to me, being a nurse meant bedpans. And I have a squeamish stomach. I knew this was going to be agony for me. And my English teacher, Miss McDonald, was just absolutely wonderful. And she took a real interest in me. And I told her what had happened. Oh, she said, I'm so delighted, she said, because I was talking to Sid Cohen, who was the editor of the Newburgh Daily News, and he was looking for a cub reporter. My first paying job was as a cub reporter on the Newburgh Daily News for $17 a week. And I saved every penny and actually went to New York City and enrolled at Traphagen School of Design. I actually was, when I think about it, fairly successful as a designer and costumer for modern dancers, primarily Merce Cunningham. I did all of his shows. And someone you probably wouldn't know about, Jean Erdman. She was an heiress to the Dole Pineapple Company. And we all lived in Greenwich Village. Eleanor also acted, and she was cast in two Broadway productions and some other off-Broadway shows, and she directed Children's Theater in New York until her husband got a job that moved them to rural Washington State. And then they moved to Seattle, where she continued to teach drama. Eleanor and her husband had two children, and when he was a teenager, Eleanor's son Jody started showing severe symptoms of schizophrenia. In retrospect, I should have recognized that my son heard voices as a child. When I look back and I recall things he said. Eleanor tried desperately to get help for her son, who was severely disabled, but she could not get him hospitalized. And a terrible tragedy took place. Terrible. He took one of my husband's guns, went to a tavern, shot up in the ceiling of the tavern, And when the men jumped on him, but the gun went off and killed somebody. A tragedy that can't be undone. And my son was declared innocent by reason of insanity. My first visit to Western State Hospital when he was there was just, he, he just wasn't there. He could not return to reality. Her son remained in the psychiatric hospital for many years, and Eleanor could not focus on anything else. She quit her job. She ended up connecting with other parents who were also unable to help their mentally disabled children. And she started going to Olympia, the state capital here in Washington, and meeting with legislators. And my definition of grave disability was turned into law. Now, I did not know at the time that this was a difficult thing to introduce get passed in both houses and signed by the governor in one year. The same year she got the law passed, 1979, Eleanor and the other parents formed the Washington Advocates of the Mentally Ill, which soon after became NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which to this day is the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization that provides support, education, and advocacy in 1,200 U.S. locations. Eleanor went from Broadway to mental health advocacy, and she continued to fight in Olympia, where she became known as the Barracuda. 
Eleanor's son Jody is now in his early 60s and she says he's doing great. He lives on his own. He got a degree in carpentry. He got a business license so he can do his own work. His medication is under control and he's thriving. All thanks to Eleanor's dedication. There are so many more details to Eleanor's amazing story, but this is a podcast that talks about food. So it's time to get to the big question. What would your last meal be? I've never seen it anywhere. And we, in our family, we call it jambat. G-I-A-M-G-I-A-M-O-T-T-A. Jambat. And you make it by sort of braising Red peppers, zucchini, onions, mushrooms, and olive oil and garlic. And uh, you can do this in the oven or on the top of the stove. And then you add either half a can or a can, depending upon whatever, of stewed tomatoes with herbs and what have you, basil, parsley, garlic, oregano, and let it simmer. And now you can make this veg- just all vegetarian or you can make it with Italian sausage. Start with the Italian sausage and brown little chunks of it and then toss the rest in. And then this simmers for a while. You break an egg and drape mozzarella cheese and parsley over the top and let it simmer. And then I think I would have that with, a, with some very, very crispy outside peasant bread, Italian bread. Interesting. So wait, is that dish kind of like a stew and then you crack the egg into it? Okay. Oh, that's interesting. It's like an Italian shakshuka. It's just delicious. And it's one of the meals a lot of my friends request. That sounds so good. So do you eat that for breakfast or dinner? Dinner. Oh, breakfast is nothing but toast and jam. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like a song lyric. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm not a breakfast person. I just my toast and lots of jam. I have a sweet tooth. I eat chocolate every day. I have so much chocolate for my birthdays. Oh, oh, I'm just hogging out. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I'll show you before I talk to you. I was eating this chocolate bar, so I'm with you. <laughs> oh, oh, I have, I have several. I have actually, I have a candy drawer. I have a large drawer full of all sorts of chocolates. For her last meal, Eleanor wants a Southern Italian vegetable stew called jambotta. And I found this dish online. It's everywhere. But I couldn't find a version that included the eggs cracked into the stew and the melted mozzarella on top. This is a specialty of Eleanor's family. And before the pandemic, Eleanor loved to entertain. The greatest burden to me from this blasted COVID isolation is not having company for dinner. Don't you miss it? That is that is my number one as well. I do not like eating dinner by myself every night. It's kind of sad, and I don't like cooking just for myself all the time. No, and I think if my son did not come regularly for supper, I know I would not cook. I just wouldn't. I just cooking for oneself seems, I don't know. I just couldn't do it. Uh, I, one year I taught at Illinois State U, and I remember 
never cooking, but eating peaches and cottage cheese over the sink. (laughs) (laughs) I've been eating over the sink a little bit too. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny during normal times, I had such a social life and I had a relationship. And so I would look forward to the times when I could eat by myself, but now it's too many times, too much. Oh, oh, yeah. I think after my husband died, to this day, if there's no one to cook for, I do not cook supper. I just don't do it. Sutanya Dakers moved to Paris in 2013. Because three years prior... I met a French man at a bar in New York City. They got married and she moved to Paris. In 2016, I found myself separated on the verge of divorce in a city that wasn't mine, a country that's not mine, a culture that I was still learning about, language that I barely spoke, an apartment that I shared with my soon-to-be ex-husband. And so I went into kind of like a spiral of not taking care of myself, going out all the time, drinking, partying, just anything that would keep me away from the reality of um, my kind of new existence in this world. A year later, she'd had enough of her chaotic lifestyle. And so I made myself a roasted chicken for the first time. I just remember having this like visceral feeling of comfort as I ate the chicken and I sat at my table Even though my apartment was like in shambles, it was a mess because I wasn't like taking care of myself or my surroundings. Just having this feeling of comfort when I made that meal for myself. And when I started doing that more regularly, it wasn't every day. It was like maybe I told myself if I could do this once or twice a week instead of going out, then if I can do something so kind for myself and so nourishing for myself that I'd be okay during this traumatic experience of of being divorced, giving myself the care and love that I needed really badly at that time. Cooking someone food, its for me, it's like one of the purest forms of love and care. And it's also very intimate. And we do that so often for other people. It's like, why, not, why don't we pay ourselves that same attention? Like, I know what I like. And I'm lucky enough to live in a city where there's still a lot of independent shops. So you can go to like the butcher and you can go to the the vegetable the, the, the cheesemonger. Yeah, yeah. The cheesemonger. You go to the poissonerie, to the fishmonger, and get nice stuff for myself and make myself a nice dish and make myself. I set the table. I have like beautiful plates. Sutanya so enjoyed teaching herself how to cook and preparing these special meals for herself that she started a podcast called Dinner for One. Each episode, Sutanya muses about her life in Paris, her personal journey, what she has learned, all the while cooking a dish. She was born in Jamaica and grew up in the Bronx, so sometimes she makes dishes from her culture. So I'm going to make rice. So what I do is I wash my rice. Maybe it's a Jamaican thing. My family's Jamaican. My mom is Jamaican. I am a product of Jamaica. And growing up, my mother always washed the rice. So I'm going to do that. And other times, so she tries too. French classics. So what are some of your favorite meals that you like to make for one? I love like pasta, anchovy, onion, garlic, like super simple, like saute some anchovies together with garlic and onion, red pepper flakes, salt, pepper, all that stuff. Pasta. She says the roasted chicken is the perfect thing to make for one because you can repurpose the leftovers in so many ways. You can make salad after with, you know, bits of the chicken. You can do a soup. You can, you know, with the bones, you can do, you can make your chicken broth and like put it in the freezer. So many things you can do. Um, and then I've recently been into stuffing my own whole fish. Yeah. So like get, 
getting like lots of fresh herbs and garlic and onion, kind of like the basics. It's like, you know, rubbing the fish with like olive oil, salt, pepper, stuffing it with all the good stuff, popping it into the oven. And, you know, 20 minutes later, you have a, you have a meal, you have some potatoes, some rice, some kind of greens, whatever you want, you have a meal. My, I love cooking things that are simple and comforting and um, homey, nothing too complicated, something that makes you feel good. A lot of people feel like they need to crutch on reading something or being on our phone when we're alone. Do you do any of those things or do you make it a point to not when you're eating by yourself, when you've set the table and set, you know, like a nice scene for yourself? I'll be honest. Sometimes I do like pull up whatever Amazon Prime movie or series of the moment that I'm watching because, you know, yes, there's an element to feeling a bit lonely and I'm not. I'm not immune to that, you know, even though I do enjoy living by myself. So sometimes I'll have a podcast on and I'll listen to that. And it's as if I have friends, maybe that sounds weird, but it's as if I have friends at the table listening to like an interesting conversation. And then other times I just have like, I'm a big fan of jazz. So sometimes I'll have, you know, a Spotify jazz playlist um, going on. I never sit in silence. So I'm already by myself. I'm also not going to eat in silence. That's a bit much. It lends to the positive energy I feel when you surround yourself with things that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I don't I think it's listen, if you're by yourself and you want to watch a movie, watch something on Amazon or Netflix or you're scrolling on your phone, that's fine. I mean, we all gotta do what we need to do to get by, right? So like I'm not here to be like, oh, when you're do when you're eating by yourself, it has to be this way. Like, no, it's whatever it's all about comfort as well, right? And feeling good. And that was the 100th episode of Your Last Meal. Thanks to all the women that participated today, including Antoinette Underwood. Another one that we had that I liked a lot was pasta vajol. And it's not the way, uh, what's the name of that restaurant that serves it? Olive Garden. Olive Garden. It's not like the Olive Garden pasta vajol. I would take some Italian bread with quite a bit of crust on it, put it on my plate, and drench it with olive oil and garlic. Then I take the pasta fazool and pour over it. Gee, it was good. It's not Olive Garden. <laughs> Thanks to Ruth Samuelson and to Brian Prouty from Leisure Care Senior Living Communities, including Fairwinds Brittany Park in Woodenville and Fairwinds Redmond, both in Washington. Brian helped connect me with Ruth and Tony. You can visit leisurecare.com to learn more. Thanks to Eleanor Owen. And next year at 101, you're invited to my birthday party. Thank you. You take a sip of wine out of one of those 312 glasses. Yes, I need to claim one of those glasses. Yes. (laughs) Thanks to Krista Boyer at Ikea. It's also crazy actually hearing your voice and being able to talk back at you instead of just laugh when I'm in my car. I forgot that you listen. Like, I've heard a few episodes and I love it. Oh, thank you so much. I actually feel like I'm speaking to a celebrity. Every time I talk to, like, a big brand that I love, I'm like, I'm talking to the meatball lady? Yes. You are talking to at least the U.S. meatball lady. Anyway. Yeah, Meatballs of America. That's you. Yep, yes. exactly. Thanks to Sutanya Dakers, host of the podcast Dinner for One. And congratulations. Her podcast is being turned into a book. Her memoir, Dinner for One, will be out in 2022. 
This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me. Theme music composed and performed by Prom Queen. And a shout out to my original producer, Aaron Mason, who helped us get to 100 episodes. And thanks to all of you who have been listening since the beginning. We've been doing the show for four and a half years now. If you haven't already, please leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts. Just a little something to say what you think of the show. Or just tap out five stars. Our latest review comes from Brenda, who said, quote, I've loved this podcast from the beginning. There has never been a bad episode. Thanks, Brenda. Oh, and right now we have 499 reviews written on Apple Podcasts. Uh, So you, you, talking to you, could be number 500. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. I am Hello Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. That is where you can send me a message if you want to get in touch. And we are bringing back Quarantine Cooking Club, which, if you're new to the show, is something we were doing last year, uh, cooking the same dish together and posting our pictures on Instagram. So make sure and go to Hello Rachel Bell on Instagram to learn more about what we're cooking this week. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. 